from Sports Pro. This is the Playbook Podcast with Matt Rogan. I'm Matt Rogan, and this is the Playbook Podcast, where leaders from inside and outside sport share pragmatic advice to help us all lead and manage through change. Today, we're going to look at fostering a culture of diversity and inclusion. It's a complex and sensitive area, which I know I personally need to learn a lot more about. It's a good job then that I was able to be joined by a real expert, Paralympian and global inclusion lead at Vodafone, Claire Harvey. You know, talent is everywhere, opportunity is not. So have a metrics and and a process for really interrogating that to see where the attrition is and where the barriers are and then how you can unpick those barriers. This is a really candid conversation where I know I personally learned a lot and I really hope you do too. A lot of sports senior leaders are really starting on a journey of understanding at this space. And that's why I wanted Claire on the show. With that in mind, off we go. So Claire, firstly, welcome for coming on. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, it's it's great to have you. And I must admit, this is um, slightly different in terms of a lot of the playbook interviews um, that we might tend to do, because often I feel like to feel like I've got... Um, a bit of a sense of um, the subject matter I'm talking about. I'm by no means an expert, but have a, a fairly educated view. And I've got to admit, right at the beginning in this area, this is an area I feel like um, I really need some education on too. It's, it's not an area I feel like by any means I've I've got any real experience and, and learning to, to fall back on beyond perhaps doing things the wrong way. So um, with that in mind, um, and the fact I'm, I'm definitely being educated too on this one, perhaps um, you could just give us a sense of your background, really, and, and how you come to be in the role of Vodafone you are and, and what else you do with, with your time, as well as what will already be a pretty full role. So I guess you could say I am either the um, trailblazer of a portfolio career or I can't stick at a job. You can decide <laughs> which that is. Um, so I'm a psychologist by background. Um, I spent um, the first 16 years of my career in the prison service, which I absolutely loved. And then um, when I had an accident and acquired a disability, um my options in the prison service were limited. Now, had it been today, I would have 100% argued what I could and couldn't do, but I just acquired a disability. I wasn't sure what that world was going to look like. So I just accepted that. I, I stayed in the prison service in a kind of in a policy role for a while, but it, it kind of reminded me what I couldn't do every day. So yeah. I had to recreate myself. And um, as as well as being a prison governor, I'd also been um, the prison and probation um, inclusion and diversity champion. Um, and that was the thing, I guess, I felt like I could transfer across. So I moved over into the corporate world, um, firstly, the financial regulator and then um, KPMG. Um, and and now um, Vodafone with this period of time in the middle um, running a consultancy, all looking at inclusion and culture, which for me are intrinsically the same thing, and how to drive high performance by making sure you create an environment where people can be their best. And, and I guess you have a, an experience of high performance as well because you're an Olympian. Yeah, so um, I'd always played a lot of sport. I used to play rugby uh, um, as a, a young girl and kind of growing up into my early teens. Um, and then when I acquired my disability, I went to a have a go disability sport day. If I'm honest with the view that I 
didn't want to be disabled and it wasn't rugby therefore I wasn't going to enjoy anything um but I found a sport called sitting volleyball um which I absolutely loved even though I was entirely rubbish at it um but thankfully had a really great group of people who were prepared to invest in me and, and nurture me through that process and to cut a long and boring story short um in 18 months became the GB captain of the London 2012 team um which was a huge privilege and a huge learning curve um so yeah that's my my kind of divergence into sport and that's, that's some background for us to an expertise for us to delve into and I guess just to reiterate what we're saying about sort of a lack of knowledge and sensitivity to that place. I notice I've said Olympian as opposed to Paralympian. And what's going on in my head is, is that the right thing to say? Is that the wrong thing to say? And so if that's just one small example, um, maybe of some vulnerabilities that I feel in this space in terms of wanting to do the right thing, but not really being exactly sure the whole time how. Um, let's let's start with, with what's hopefully a really simpler one then, because you talked about diversity and you talked about inclusion. So... Can you help us understand, are they the same thing? Are they different things? How, how do we how do we differentiate there? Yeah, so they're quite different and we kind of lump them together. But as our understanding evolves, I think we evolve. So diversity is the things that we all have that make us unique. So mm-hmm. diversity is all around us, irrespective of whether we're seeing it or not. It's the, the things that all of us have that make us unique, ranging from, you know, the cultural heritage or ethnicity, whether you're introvert versus extrovert, whether you're gay, whether you're straight, whether you're a male, female, all of those things um, that we would see as demographic characteristics, as well as stuff under the ground around our thinking style and our behaviors and our values and all of those things. So it's always there. Inclusion is the culture that we create around us that means that people feel visible and valued and um, are able to be themselves. So think of diversity as a fact, inclusion as a, as a choice that we all create for other people. We can then go on kind of people talk about we used to talk about equal opportunities, you know, equal meaning people are treated in the same way. You know, if you and I were running a same race, me as a wheelchair user, you know, I'm not going to stand much of a chance. So treating everyone the same way doesn't ever work. Very few people get what they need. So now we talk more about equity, where people have the same opportunities. Um, And then we're really now talking about social justice, which is around how do we unpick the inequalities that are baked into our systems and ways of society. So if you take an example, diversity would be how many different types of people have I got in this room? Equity would be how many people would like to be in the room but can't get in. Inclusion would be have I created the environment where everyone can fully participate in the meeting? And social justice would be how many voices am I going to hear but instantly dismiss because I value them less than other parts of society? So you can kind of see that evolution. But on a basic level, think diversity is around us. Inclusion is what we choose to do. And I really encourage people to move away from managing diversity towards practicing inclusion, which we're all in control of. And to that subject of, of being in control, I think um, if I look back at my time with Gareth and Claire and the team leading two circles, um, I'd like to think that the spirit was really willing, but I'm not sure the skill and understanding and empathy was there um, to act on that. So, so to 
Um, and if I look at um, whether it's gender, whether it's ethnicity, in terms of finding the right voices in the room and then creating the culture that, that really engage with them, um, there was a lot of effort, but I'm not sure we necessarily completely nailed any of them through the first few years of the business. Um, but how do you notice, it's, it's a big generalization, of course, but how do you, how do you notice sports coming to terms with some of these things and, and getting his head around it? Um, my perception is we're quite late to this conversation. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think that's very fair. And and again, I don't think it's necessarily because the intention hasn't been there. I think it's that uh, actually the understanding of how to get there perhaps hasn't been there. And the desire and the drive actually from some of the governance systems to do what I call virtue signaling. The yeah. things that we all do that make us feel better, that demonstrate to the outside world that we, we are making a difference, but actually don't make a difference. A bit like, you know, how many of us join the gym on the 1st of January? Feels great you know, we, we sign up, it's a public commitment and we know that by February, we're not going to be going anymore, you know? So those things, and I think the trouble with, with a structure like sport is, you know, the equality standards, you know, UK sport, sport England funding and things are very much focused on demonstrating inputs rather than demonstrating outcomes, which means that people go towards the really easy things to demonstrate as opposed to changing the systemic problem. I think the other thing um, about sport that makes it difficult is the majority of people who are involved in sport and particularly at the governance level love sport and get involved in the sport that they love. And therefore, it can be doubly hard to be comfortable enough to critically evaluate that sport and see that other people don't see it and love it in the same way that you do and want by nature by human nature to to replicate and reinforce the things that you loved about the sport that work brilliantly for you but might not work for someone else you know human nature is we like people like us and if we're left to our own devices we we create systems and structures that work for for us and people like us and so the group outside get further and further away and then of course in sport we do that often thing that we do of all you know I'm gonna I'm gonna interview or I'm gonna survey all the people who take part in this sport to find out what's right and wrong about the sport forgetting actually that the people you really need to be interviewing are the people who don't take part in that sport because we're always in that echo chamber so I think we we are far behind I think there are some really interesting and, and difficult things to grapple with. But the biggest thing is looking at the root cause of a problem rather than tackling the system. You know, so we're not just putting sticking plasters on, but we're really going back to the systemic stuff of why people aren't engaging um, or feeling like sport is a place for everyone. It's interesting, actually. I'm um, So as we talk, I'm hiding in a stand, <laughs> hoping I don't get discovered in the Oval um, cricket ground in, in London having been at a session, the 100, team behind the 100 were running, um, talking about everything they've been focused on to try and be a catalyst for gender parity in sport. Um, and to your point, um, with the benefit of a relatively blank sheet of paper for this new tournament, saying, well, um, the female players are going to be equally represented in terms of everything from when the games are scheduled, um, through to the changing rooms we use, the buses we use, 
um, and the way in which we represent the sport from, from the ground up. And I, I guess it's a lot easier to do that in something that's brand new as opposed to where the whole goal is, is to talk to new audiences as distinct from, um, you know, a incremental change on something that's been there for, for hundreds of years or in the case of the Paralympics, even maybe tens of years. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, sport's not in a, in its, you know, I think sport sometimes wants to be in its own little bubble and the reality is it's not. So we need to work harder with places like schools and communities because it's school where you start to decide what's the sport for you, what's not, based on not your genuine love of a whole range of sports, but actually what sports are offered in your school. You know, so, so there is a route to sport um, and we need to as well as working out what's in our control within our own sport, we also need to think about those pathways in and how we stop narrowing the funnel and encourage our, you know, those people that we need to work with to stop narrowing the funnel as well. Absolutely. And I guess if I look back, say, at the last 10 years of, of the history of, of Two Circles or, or any other organisation in the sports space, it's feel like uh, the first five years it almost categorises a sort of a slowly incremental growth of awareness followed by all of a sudden as a senior leader I, I felt like in all the areas we we're talking about I needed to be a, a, an expert immediately and, and frankly just felt um, mostly completely out of my depth what do you think what does the end state look like here so in 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 two three four five years time where are we going to be at and and how do I as a leader in sport use anyone else as a leader in sport how do we stop ourselves trying to catch up <laughs> with, with the prevailing social attitude seemingly changing weekly and, and sort of instead think about, right, that's where I've got to get to. Is there, can you clarify what an end state would look and feel like maybe? I mean, I guess the end state in a utopia world would be that, you know, every opportunity is open to everyone and everyone can, mm-hmm. can feel visible and valued in anything that they do. You know, the reality is we don't live in, an, in a utopia world. Um, and, and that's, you know, we again, sport doesn't live outside of the inequalities and structural systems of society. But I think where would be a really great place to be is that every sport, every sport organization working with sport has this embedded into their strategic priorities not as the add-on extra thing that they do but you know actually genuinely in everything that they do and is looking critically at itself not unkindly at itself but critically at itself with the lens of who's not participating who's what are those barriers and is seeking to make those incremental nudges one of the things I think we struggle from is people are very kind of problem solution focused and um, you know these are big complex issues and therefore you can only make incremental nudges and sometimes that feels like you're not doing enough so people kind of or it feels so overwhelming that you don't know where to start so people don't do either Um, and I think that just having that every every sport could articulate what inclusion would look like for them um, and and their steps towards it. I think that would be a great place. And, and I do think that that paralysis is, 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 is a real challenge for, for a lot of senior leaders. I spoke to a chairman of an Olympic sport and a, a chief exec of a, of a team in the last week. And both have said to me, they're just terrified of getting things wrong. Uh, and in the absence, and given that terror, 
are very aware they actually do don't do enough and do very little because that so is there a part of the culture that we need to create that actually recognizes that not everything will be done correctly the first time and and actually it's just a bit more permissive of um and appreciative of the effort and creating a culture which 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 values that and, and recognizes that not everything is going to be done the right first time in this space yeah, definitely. I think there's a couple of things at play there. One is, and we see this in the corporate world absolutely all the time, you know, one is leaders, elite sport, you know, leaders in sport come from a, often come from a place where I have to know the answer. I have to be all knowing. I have to, and I have to make it look really easy and really simple too. And therefore sitting with the discomfort of a, a complex problem like this that hasn't got an easy answer and you you know by nature of the fact that you're in that place means you you haven't thought about it in in the right way or in the in in enough it is really difficult for people so we've got to create environments where people can sit with that discomfort yeah. and have really uncomfortable conversations comfortably you know the the answers to this is not rocket science i must stop saying that because rocket science is really isn't that complicated anymore is it but um <laughs> but uh, you know the the answers are there the p- people can tell you what will make it better what are the barriers we've just got to put the time and investment and be vulnerable enough to hear that and really listen to it as opposed to kind of like listen performatively and then shut it down um and it's a journey of collaboration and i think that's where we need to get to and also as a community you know you know i'm a gay woman a gay woman with disability we we've created a bit of a society at the moment where we the starting point for all of us is moral outrage you know whatever we're going to talk about particularly on social media our starting point is i'm morally outraged by it before i know any of the facts um and i sometimes feel that you know when when a sport or 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 any organization we definitely see this around advertising when when a company tries to to make a inclusive representative advert and they get the language wrong or they get something wrong the community involved are the first to attack them and tell them they didn't do enough and they didn't we're seeing this at the moment with pride you know the amount of conversations around pink washing oh you're putting a flag up but what else are you doing that that's never a great way to keep people engaged we've got to be kinder to each other and we've got to see this as a, a a problem that all of us have to work on together and we need to work genuinely collaboratively it, it was fascinating talking to um, the chairman of the sport I mentioned, who, who said that um, because they're slightly longer t- longer in the tooth in terms of their career, you know, the people they mentor or the chief exec they support and challenge, um, they said they're used to having a framework or a piece of experience or a piece of knowledge that they can refer to when posed a question. They said in this space, you know, just got no, no foundations, no knowledge, and and the way they solved it was was almost sort of upending the hierarchical pyramid, if you like, and going to the the grassroots of the organisation and just 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 upfronting the lack of knowledge and lack of experience and trying to tap into the way in which, I guess, prevailing social attitudes, in particular amongst younger generations, have changed. Um, is there anything else you would you would advise for those of us who are who are struggling a little bit in the more senior areas of sport, who, you know, where, where do we start in terms of educating ourselves? I think uh, the best advice is kind of educate yourself. And that doesn't mean, you know, read books and become an expert. It means 
talk to people, start conversations with people who are really different to you, not from a kind of power base, but from a, can you just, can I just hear, can I just hear your, your experience? Can I just hear, you know, so I can begin to understand, but understand with empathy rather than judgment. Um, And I think that curiosity of what am I not looking at? What am I not seeing? And also I think, you know, sports quite insular, right? You know, it's a very closed community and people would do really well to have in their personal boardroom, the kind of people that they go to, people who are really different and have really different views and see that as a positive challenge rather than a something that's slowing down the process or an annoying challenge. And I think that is the starting point. So if you, let's let's keep things at, at, at let's say a, a boardroom table level. Then, so I, I sit on a, a few boards and trusted charities and things. And, and one of the charities I'm involved with is is involved in a conversation at the moment where they're thinking um, we need to address the the divergence of voices we have in the room because they're too similar. Um, and there's two schools of thought. One of which is we appoint new board directors. And one of which is the few of us who've been there for um, for too long sort of take a hike and hand our roles over to in order to enable that. And it's, I'm not sure there's a right answer, but um, what would your take be for any board considering this? Is the best thing to do to react quickly and 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 therefore increase the number of board directors in the room? Or is it a, a more emergent incremental handover process? I think, like you said, there's not one right answer based on on individual circumstance. But the question I always go back to is, why are you doing it? You know, are you doing it because you genuinely want to hear those diverse verses? Or are you doing it because you've got something that you've got to fill in that says how many, which type of people have I got in this room? Um you know, there's lots of things you can do that doesn't mean that one person has to lose for another person to win. We often, you know, particularly politically from an ideological point of view at the moment, there is a very deliberate attempt to create the illusion that inclusion is a pie. And that if we give it to one group, we've got to take it away from another group. And therefore it becomes a comp- it becomes like hunger games, a competition of, you know, of minoritized groups over who's going to get the attention, which is a very deliberate strategy to stop those groups all working together um so we don't want to create that environment yeah um so you know be a bit creative have a shadow board have a but but not a board that you're going to listen to and you're not really going to listen to and then you'll have the real conversation make sure it's authentic and genuine whilst you then look at the 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 wider issue of succession planning and all of those you know at the point that you're scurrying around trying to find the you know the black gay disabled woman that's going to tick all your boxes for the board that's too late go Mm -hmm. back and look at your pipeline go back and look at your you know how are you engaging people in the sport so you're engaging a really diverse group of people because that will create your pipeline that means you're not scurrying around um, when you need to then find a position. And I guess um, beyond the board then and, and in the wider uh, pipeline of talent you have across an organisation, how do you, like, is there something Vodafone do well, for example, in terms of just collectively and culturally raising awareness to um, the need for wider um, divergent views in the organization and then the need for that sort of inclusive culture that, that you as well as a, a diverse workforce that you described you know are there are there 
sensible things we can do quickly in all our organizations just to just to broaden that out yeah there's lots of really practical things the first is actually kind of embed those things into your values and what you reward in the organization so make Uh sure you know for example at Vodafone you know values and what we call the spirit of Vodafone and how people interact with each other is as important as the performance so you don't reward people who get the job done but actually leave a trail of devastation behind them you know you're rewarding the not just the outcome but the impact that you have on other people and how you bring other people as well and and what you find when you put those kind of things in place is you know actually people move towards the behaviors that they know they're going to get rewarded for and it become you become less of an outlier we role modeling in an organization isn't i see one person championing diversity and and therefore i want to be like that person role modeling in an organization is i see one person or 10 people not being very inclusive but still getting rewarded and still getting things. So therefore, it obviously doesn't matter. And I think we can think about that in sport at different levels. You know, how many coaches do we know in sport historically and still today who treat people terribly, you know, and do all sorts of inappropriate things, but because they're a good coach and they get medals and they get things, we keep them on. You know, intrinsically, that is we accept the lowest behavior we accept is our culture so we have to ask ourselves some really tough questions about that and how do we make sure that you know if people want to participate in sport if they want to participate at that level whatever that level is for that sport these are the behaviors and the values we expect people to abide by and there's a consequence if you don't and I think that's what starts to really um help people thrive because we're all playing the same game at that point um but also help people want to be part of that organization i I speak to a lot of organizations who say oh there's you know we just can't find any whatever diverse group they're looking for people who have those skills you know we're not talking about unicorns those people do exist they just don't want to come to an organization with you like yours. So the, the the question is not how do we hunt them down? The question is how do we change ha- how we are and how we appear from the outside world in order to be more attractive? And that was that was definitely the the question that had the biggest impact on us at Two Circles. Um, we had some fantastic challenge from members of our team um and some people from outside the organization in terms of things as simple as um the way we represented ourselves on our own website uh, and as specific as some of the areas we were asking for in terms of hard experience in our job role profiles which were um when we really sat down and really thought about it leading us to just recruit more people that looked and talked and felt and experience things just like us and it wasn't deliberate but it we hadn't taken the time to do it properly yeah and that's kind of recruitment and things you know there's some really tangible things around what skills do I actually need someone to have versus what can I teach them you know what about the transferable skills you know when you look at sport you know it's fascinating how how many when you look at jobs in sport people assume someone has to have been in sport and been a sports person why you know you talk about governance of an organization um so really asking ourselves some tough questions and then actually exactly to your point putting systems and structures around so that we're not 
we're not just finding people who give the answers that we would expect to give because they think and and have the same experience that we do and therefore we naturally feel more comfortable with them we we stop thinking about culture fit and we start thinking about culture add and and that does change the dynamic and it's uncomfortable and it means you need to rethink how you do things but ultimately that leads to a better organization absolutely and uh, i guess you know if i'm really honest with myself i you know when we when we set up two circles we were looking for academics um really firmly and clearly for academics and, and we were only really um looking for academics because it was a it wasn't because we were snobby or, or anything it was but it was because we saw them as a really good proxy for somebody being able to grasp new things quickly um but there are all sorts of other things in life in particular if you've come from um, a more challenged upbringing that's made academics difficult that also taught you to grasp new things quickly and just little things like that just just really changed the way we we went about some pretty fundamental disciplines in our business given we were a people business you know it's kind of we had to get that bit right um you, you touched on on vodafone and and i'm imagining you've seen some amazing stuff there as an organization i would perceive to be um to be very good at some of this kind of stuff. Is there anything else that we in the sports industry could learn from the way an organization like that goes about this whole area? You know, any tips or tricks from from other things you've seen there? I think uh, two things. Always remember that what gets measured gets treasured. Um, And so actually really kind of build some metrics around what would a good culture look like and actually articulate that. It's amazing how many organizations um, talk about the importance of inclusion, but aren't working towards an end goal they can't articulate what would this look and feel like if it was mm-hmm. inclusive so you end up just scattergunning and doing all sorts of things um and that also then leads to that embedding inclusion rather than practice managing diversity you know I, enable everyone to build the skills and the systems and structures that work hard for inclusion rather than constantly battling it. And then I think the the last thing is give flexibility in order to get to the outcome. So, you know, Vodafone's a global company um, and obviously we've got a footprint in countries where it's illegal to be LGBT, where, you know, disabled people um frankly are kind of considered social outcasts and you'd never consider them in the workplace and you know very kind of very extremes of beliefs and cultures and and that means we need to be sensitive to those things and definitely not just an impose a this is what works for here so you're now doing this so we need to co-design things with people so that it works for everyone or give people very clear guardrails that they can't go outside of, but enable them to get to the outcome in the way that that makes sense for them. And when I think about sport and how, you know, the levels of sport and how often you you see things that are, you know, like the coaching work that's done, but that those coaching organizations really only re- reach elite sports and the, the biggest things. What does that mean for grassroots or things that get pushed out from a national governing body that don't work for small clubs or small parts of the organization or, you know, the, the disability arm or those kind of things? Um, I, I think that really it creates another additional barrier and takes away the meaningfulness and therefore the engagement of people in inclusion because you don't want compliance. You don't want people doing inclusion because they 
they feel like they have to. We definitely had that at Vodafone and realized that that's got a very short shelf life Mm -hmm. because you can't be everywhere all the time. And therefore, when you're not in the room, if people don't understand why they're doing it and aren't genuinely engaged in why it benefits, then they stop doing it. So spend as much time influencing on the story and the engagement as you do the compliance aspects. That, that makes that makes total sense. If you were, so if you were um, the chief executive of uh, any Paralympic or Olympic governing body in the in the next cycle, um, and you, I were to give say to you, well, what gets measured gets treasured, you know. And there were three or four metrics you were going to put in your sporting plan for the next three or four years what are the measures that you think would really transfer well from someone like Vodafone over to to sport um so I think it's belonging measures Uh of belonging um so that people are genuinely kind of feel like they're engaged in the sport I think well-being so that people aren't just performing but they're genuinely thriving and we aren't just burning people out and that's it because that's never great for a sport in a in terms of performance but b in terms of reputation and kind of life longevity um and then i think the the second thing is the metrics around um engagement and non-engagement who's who's involved in the sport who's not who's progressing through the sport who's not you know when you look at sports like cricket and hockey no disrespect to them at all and I, i know that they're working really hard on that but you look at how diverse those sports are in their grassroots base and then you look at how undiverse those sports are at their elite level there there is clear attrition at some point unless we genuinely believe that certain groups of people are much better at those sports than other people which I don't believe that's true you know talent is everywhere opportunity is not so have a metrics and and a process for really interrogating that to see where the attrition is and where the barriers are and then how you can unpick those barriers Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a massive fan of, um, there's a hockey club in, in central London called Spencer, the hockey cricket club, and, and they have an outreach hockey club. I think it's just hockey called Spencer Links, which, which works really hard at um, offering hockey up as, as something for kids from all sorts of backgrounds to try in school and, and acts as a feeder into the, uh, into the, the main club. And, and guess what? Um, the kids that they recruit from those backgrounds are, you know, often stronger actually than the kids who've had a lot more formal coaching. Challenge, as you say, is how you you can sort of keep nurturing them and growing them through in that environment where, you know, Sunday away games need a need a, a taxi ride to get there and those kind of things. And so, how you unpick some of those challenges does feel like a very real question for for some of our contemporary, you know, white middle class sports as they move forward. And as a management team and as a leadership team, you don't need to have the answers. You just need to be courageous enough to ask the questions. Absolutely. And and you would say that for Spencer, for example, um, it's a good problem to have in the sense of they've solved the, the initial recruitment um, challenge in, into the sport, into the club. Now they've got to work out how they, how they keep people there. Um, listen, as, as, we, um, as we draw to a close, it would be completely remiss of me not to to ask a little bit about the Paralympic Games um, this summer. Um, I must admit, I've felt a little bit uncomfortable um, about some of the discussion as to whether 
the Olympics should or shouldn't happen this summer and noticing it's very much an Olympic focused conversation in the sense that maybe that's not entirely just because they're the first um, of the global sporting events that we see we see happening and also cognizant that uh, a lot of the challenges for um, disability athletes in the in the pandemic are, are more material than, than able-bodied and and, uh, and Olympic athletes um, what, what's your sense of um, how the conversation has played out for the Paralympics over the course of the last year? And most importantly, how we put on a, a really successful games, two games come the summer. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm, I don't think I've been close enough to make any deep and meaningful comment, but I think you often see a couple of things happen. One is the natural assumption that if someone is a has a disability, they're more vulnerable. We definitely experienced that. We were one of the last sports to be given permission to start training together. Mm-hmm. Um, and whilst there are some very practical difficulties around, you know, we sit on the floor and shuffle around on our bums, right? So that's, you know, but but actually I think some of that was also a a predisposed perception that because we've got disabilities we're more vulnerable to COVID you know when in reality most of my team are you know amputees or um, like me a spinal cord injury you know brings very little additional risk in terms of COVID so I think there's that way that we see disability in society which means vulnerable which means you know need a bit more protection those kind of things I think the other thing is um you know, often I do feel still like the Paralympic version of any sport is the add-on, it's the extra, it's the additional thing. And often, you know, it still frustrates frustrates me hugely that so few uh, coaches, national governing bodies uh, have disability represented in them when they're talking about disability. And, you know, I can speak candidly for volleyball, you know, we went in London 2012, we did have to have some really uncomfortable conversations around, you know, you're trying to take what works for the able-bodied sport, predominantly youth men, mm-hmm. and you're just lifting it and shifting it into the disability program and it just doesn't work for us. Um, so I think there's a, some conversations about what does and doesn't work and who's making that decision and who's thinking about it. I think it's important for me to remember what the Games is about and I, I feel on a very personal level that the conversations about whether the the game should go ahead have had a lot more to do with finances than they have the bigger purpose of the games, which is to inspire and engage and, and build, you know, that platform that said, you know, once those decisions are made, I'm a great believer in pragmatism. Once those decisions are made by people well cleverer than me, it's important that we, we work with that and make it the best it can be. Um, And I think you know, I really hope that what what happened in London 2012 and again in 2016 was that the, the Paralympic Games wasn't just an add-on. It wasn't just the extra thing. It wasn't the pity fest. It was a genuine display of, you know, extreme elite skills. And it was a an opportunity for people to engage and understand more about disability than they had before. You like to believe that, or at least hope that, um, the way the pandemic's panning out in Tokyo, there might actually be a world where, given ticket sales, the Paralympics are extremely strong, that that there might actually be more people in the stadium for the Paralympics than the Olympics, given the way things are panning out. I'd love that a lot. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, well, listen, um, we ask everyone a thorny question to, to finish up these pods. Um, and I certainly wouldn't have a clue how to answer this on your behalf. Um, it's lucky that I don't need to. So we ask everyone to sum up their main message from from the podcast in 10 words or less, um, which is for this in particular, not very straightforward, I would imagine. But can you give it a rattle? Um, I'm going to go for this is testing my counting skills more than anything else. Um, leadership is a responsibility and not a title. And it's a responsibility to empower everyone around them to be their very, very best. Fantastic. I shall fiddle that in my write-up to make it under 10 words and check you're all right with it. <laughs> Listen, um, Claire, thanks ever so much for taking time. I must admit, it's probably the the one of these playbook pods I've felt the most nervous about about doing because it's the one I feel like I need the most education in myself. But thank you for being um, gentle with me. And I'm sure the industry as a whole will be really grateful for the time you spent. So thanks ever so much. Thank you for being willing to be to sit with that vulnerability i really appreciate it thanks ever so much bye the playbook podcast is published by sports pro and is part of a wider series delivering agenda free pragmatic advice on how to navigate your organization through change to explore the library and find out about the playbook labs residential executive training program head to sportspromedia.com slash playbook